0: She is seductive. She is passionate. She is possessive. She is pure, evil. She is Christine, a 1958 Plymouth Fury, possessed by hell. Her previous owner is not alive to warn her present one. Once she lures you behind the wheel, you will be hers, body and soul. There is no place you can hide, no place you can run, and nothing you can do can stop her. Because how do you kill something that can't possibly be alive? Christine. Body by Plymouth. Soul by Satan.
1: You first or me?
2: Hello, I'm Don Stubbard.
0: And I'm Alan Gregory Fox.
1: And we are Pennywise Dreadful. So as is traditional, we'll start with our um, traditional content warning. Stephen King writes horror fiction and frequently explores the dark side of human nature. At times during the podcast. We'll be discussing events that some listeners may find disturbing or even traumatising. And I'm not going to say, as usual, that this is a particularly traumatic book, because that seems to crop up quite a lot. Yeah, we seem to say that every podcast we've ever done. Although this is, I would say, more of a a love story than the majority of King's Fiction. Anyway, enough of the preliminaries, and I think we should introduce our special guest. I think we should, too. By the wonders of technology, today we, we are delighted to welcome to our discussion um, Dr. Simon Brown from Kingston University. Um, Hello. Good Hello. evening.
2: Now, I, I want to start off, Simon, if that's all right, by asking you about this particular novel, because I hear on the grapevine that you have an affinity to this one.
3: I do, I do. This was uh, the first Stephen King novel I read in 1983 when it came out. I'm still, I have a very bad memory, so I'm trying to piece together the sequence of events that led to this, because before this I was reading Doctor Who books, so this was really the first grown-up book I ever read, if you like. Uh, No offence to fans of Terence Dix and Doctor Who books, of course. But I think at that time I was a John Carpenter fan, and I heard that he was making a film of this book, And uh, the book was in the bookshops. So I went out and I bought it and I read it. And yeah, I've been a constant reader uh, ever since. So that's 1983, so that's 35 years at this point.
2: Wow, that's That's pretty impressive. I haven't been a constant reader for quite that long. I think I started
1: in about 87 when I was 11. I don't want to... Shame myself by talking about how youthful I am in comparison <laughs> to the fact that I didn't exist in 1983. Um, oh, thanks, Alan. Um, yeah, let, let's not. Let's move on. Move on very quickly. Um, but in fairness, it's not just the affinity from it being the first King book you ever read, but the fact that you've had the fortune/slash misfortune to. Sit in Christine, from uh, what I've seen in, and heard about in various discussions we've had. So that's,
3: abso- that's absolutely true. I mean, the the subject of Christine Carr fandom may maybe something that we want to to revisit a, a bit later on. Sure, but I've been uh, I've been a fan of the fifty eight Plymouth Fury ever since I read the book and saw the film. And um, a couple of years ago, I flew to Bangor, Maine, for an event called Bangor Fest, uh, G-O-R-E, Bangor Fest. Uh-huh. And um, there's uh, along the, alongside many special guests was the car, one of the two or three surviving cars that were actually in the film. And uh, along with the cast of, so of the some of the cast of films, so the guy who played Muchi, the guy who played. Don Vandenberg, I think, Lee Cabot, and uh, William Ostrando who played Buddy Repperton, they were there, mm. uh, along with the writer Bill Hughes, and it was a big kind of Christine thing. And the guy who owns Christine, whose name I've just forgotten at the moment, but you can find him on Facebook at Christine Movie Car. I interviewed him, and uh, he basically gave me the keys, and he went for coffee, and he said, uh, yourself. I don't. I wasn't allowed to drive it, obviously. <laughs> but I could let myself in. I'd be uh, scared to drive. Did, Christine, no, it was, for no, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. But I want to talk more about the car later, because of course one of the most interesting things about the car in relation to car fandom is that, as written, the 1958 Plymouth Fury that Christine is doesn't actually exist. No, she doesn't. In The real world. So, um, so that's something maybe we can uh, we can come back to if if we, uh, we move on from talking to the, you know, if we don't witter about the book for too long.
1: <laughs> Indeed. Well, there is plenty to witter about. Um, I mean, as, as the star of this particular show, uh, Simon, uh, where would you like to begin?
3: Oh, that's a very good question. I think you have to begin with the characters. I think you have to begin with particularly Dennis and Arnie and mm. talk, about, talk about that. And I think one of the other kind of key things about this particular book... Certainly, for me, is I, I, if you like, I've always, and this may be another place to start, but I've always seen Christine as the, the first book in King's kind of 80s bestseller period. I, I always think of, of the earlier books, even The Stand, as being a bit more rougher around the edges. Yeah, yeah. And this one is the first kind of polished. Blockbuster novel So, I mean, actually, yeah. Why don't we start by thinking about where this settles in the King canon? Alan.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, and I think you're right. There's a maturity to Christine that isn't particularly there in the earlier books, isn't it? In his writing style and in the way he's enunciating his characters and the way his characters are being
1: developed. Yeah. I'm wondering. I think that. Polish is the right term, you know, Simon's referred to polish uh, as a thing, because I, I would say that I remember reading the introduction to The Shining and, and King's saying that he made a conscious choice to sort of change the way he approached the writing of, of the nov- his novels, Yeah, and that sort of was a, a sort of a watershed moment for him in terms of his writing processes. Yeah. But there's still a, a raw quality to, to the yeah. narrative of The Shining that I think has been almost, I wouldn't say cut out, but smoothed over yeah. um, by the time we reached Christine. And I think given the subject matter and, and the fact that you're talking about the novel sort of turns on a such a big transformative process, both in terms of Christine's transformative process and mm-hmm. Arnie's transformative mm-hmm. process, there could be something that can be said about the mirroring of that and the sort of, Smoothing out of um, writer and writing um, in that way. Not sure I'm making any sense. Of course, but... you're making sense, Alan. People are used to our rambling. What do you think, Simon, about the
2: the polish that he's bringing by the time we get to 83?
3: Well, I think it's a, in a way, for me, it's, it's both a kind of a, a good thing and a bad thing. There's that, that old thing he talks about, the the old joke, you know, where does the 300-pound gorilla sit? Anywhere it wants. Mm. Uh, and he talks about the fact that in the 80s and at the height of his kind of cocaine uh, addiction and, and drinking and alcoholism, you know, he was the 300-pound gorilla. Yeah. And, uh, you know, spoiler alert, looking forward, you know, Tom Inokas is, is the biggest example of that and the best example of that. But I think one of the things about Christine is it, it's the polish is both a good thing but it also introduces that kind of period of, for me of the 300 pound gorilla the the guy who can do whatever he wants Mm. and so you know i mean you talk about you talk about any filmmaker or writer or or, uh, anything like that and the idea of them losing their their raw edge or, or leaving their raw edge behind i think is is a better phrase um Sometimes that's a good thing, sometimes that's not a good thing, and sometimes it's both. And I think Christine is an example of both. It's it's a book that that has lost the kind of raw edge of Carrie and The Shining and The Stand and The Dead Zone and Firestarter as well. Mm. And it's kind of entering into to something that's slick. And I'm not saying slick necessarily in a bad way, but what I'm trying to say is that I think this process of becoming this kind of best-selling writer this Saurus rex you know really starts here uh, in terms of the style yeah. and it's a double-edged sword so for example you have this really interesting story device where it's narrated in the first person and then it stops and is narrated in the third person and then it goes back to being the first person again and clearly in a way that's a problem yes you know that's not something that you should do but at the same time, he's in this point now where he can do it and get away with it and it doesn't really matter. Um, and it didn't matter to me when I first read it at all. Uh, and it's only later I kind of look at it and think, mm, really, that's that's actually, you know, bad writing. Yeah. But nevertheless, at the same time, alongside that, the rhythm of the writing, the rhythm of the writing that sustains you through from Christine all the way through to something like needful things, is very much there that the rhythm is is less choppy the rhythm is is smoother The rhythm is easier on the eye and the ear as you're reading it. Uh, And I think there's, as I say, I think the best way to describe it, and I don't mean this necessarily in a bad way, is it's a very slick book.
2: Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think one of the things I found reading it this time, because I've read it a few times in the past, but reading it this time, there's one or two bits that almost confusion. And I think the, the chopping from first to third and then back to first person was part of that. But I think, I think there's a little few bits where King doesn't seem certain himself what's going on with Christine. Is Christine possessed or is she haunted by Roland or yeah. a, a, you know, a few tensions there that just this time when I was reading it seemed to seep in and not spoil the book, but made me question a little bit.
1: I you think know, there are um, certain points of ambiguity in all of, of King's fiction, yes. but I think that this is one of those times where it might have benefited from being less ambiguous. Yeah. Um, mm. The one thing I would say about um, the book being slick, and I, and I agree with that, is that I wonder how much of it is part of a natural gradual progression of King's Maturity as a, as a mm. writer, and how much of it is a deliberate attempt to mirror the experience of driving a car as nice as Christine <laughs> is all is all as a as a car. Yeah. You know, she is a an object of pure beauty, and she not when you see that this scrap heap on on the front lawn in the first few pages, but uh, yeah, when a cl- even, when the clocks run back a few miles. Yeah, I mean, but even then, it's Arnie sees the. Beneath the veneer of, of to see the the aspiration of beauty underneath, and um, so I'm wondering. So you sort of you hear people talk about sitting behind the wheel of you know a Jaguar E Type or whatever, and it being like the smoothest drive they've ever mm-hmm. had, and and I imagine that that's the kind of experience that King was trying to suggest that Christine could provide. <laughs> in fully restored condition and so I'm wondering whether the style uh, the writing style is meant to mirror that kind of, of driving experience I don't know
3: Maybe. I, I don't know I mean that's an interesting thought I'm never sure whether or not King actually is as conscious as that in terms of what he does um, that's I, a little bit I too think I think he sits down and writes 10 pages a day uh, and it is what it is and uh, I mean he he does, you know he is very very dismissive as we all know of, of the kind of things that we're doing here and people kind of unpicking his books, he, uh, academics kind of noodling about them. He's very much uh, I write stories job done end of and, yeah. and I've got no problem with that. So I don't know. I. I think one of the ways I see it is to compare characters, you know, to my mind, Stephen King's two best male characters, which are Jack Torrance in The Shining and Arnie here in Christine. And I know they're very different. You know, Jack, in a way, is guilty, even though what happens to him he doesn't necessarily deserve, but he's still guilty. Arnie is guiltless. Mm. He's a guiltless character. None of this is his fault. All All he wants is this thing and you know at at best you can at worst you can fault him for being mildly materialistic um but you look at the way the two characters are written you look at the way all the characters you can look at those two books across each other and look at the way the characters talk to each other there's a much more of a kind of rhythmic flow in the the way that dennis and arnie talk to each other and the way that arnie talks to his parents than in the way that jack talks to wendy i'm not saying that that's forced um, uh, in any way shape or form but I think it's here it's, it's music yeah the way they talk the rhythm of it it's it's slick it's fast it's funny uh, I think that one of the things that gets lost in as uh, people read is how funny it is mm-hmm. it's a very funny book you know the way they the characters talk to each other yeah. the way
2: they, the way they riff off each other just in general conversation yeah. and
3: as as two teenagers talking they sound to me like two teenagers talking they yeah. really really do Dennis and Arnie, they sound like real people.
1: Would, would Joe and Owen King have been teenage age at that point? Or would it
3: have been... No. Not quite. because no, Joe was Joe was in Creepshow, so that would have been made at the time that King was writing Christine, which, of course, is why Christine is set in Pittsburgh. Right. Uh, because he was in Pittsburgh making Creepshow with Romero at the time. Uh, so Joe would have been 10. Right. And so Owen would have been younger, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, he's the youngest of the kids, isn't he? But
3: then King will have still
1: been
2: young enough to... Remember I don't want to sound team. really flippant about it, but he'll have still been young enough to remember what it was like. Because it's yeah. a fact that as we get older...
1: The, the nostalgia. yeah creeps in yeah 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 and there is a, a big element of nostalgia in this. oh gosh yeah i think the the whole book is a nostalgia for the
2: 1950s isn't it i think you say that in something i've recently read of yours don't you simon the the, the novel is a, a 1950s nostalgia
3: mm. yeah i don't I mean, yes absolutely and, and i think that in a way you look at the dead zone and Firestarter; those are two books that are kind of engaging with the problems of america in the 1970s um, you know, the, the shop in Firestarter is very, uh, you know, government conspiracy yeah. uh, shady, you know, all that kind of stuff. And the dead zone, you know, Stilson is Nixon or Trump, if you prefer. Wow, um, it does fit. It does fit, to shoot fit. Where, Yeah, whereas this one is is harking back to before the kind of crisis in America. It's harking back to the, the age of Detroit rolling iron of the 1950s, you know, the, the great era of car design. Mm. Uh, in the United States. But one of the things that's quite interesting is that in America in the early 80s, at that time that the book was being written, there was this kind of burgeoning sort of uh, groundswell of interest in the kind of cars of the 1950s. So it's, uh, and I think, I mean, I've read this, you know, I didn't come up with this, I've read this, but um, it was about sort of uh, fathers who grew up in the you know the baby boomer generation who grew up in the 50s in these cars yeah uh, and who then became fathers themselves kind of uh, talking to their you know driving around in their horrible square late 70s early 80s buicks or whatever and kind of uh, talking to their kids about this golden age where where cars looked beautiful where cars were huge where gas was cheap as water yeah um, and you actually, you actually see at that point a kind of spike of interest in people kind of uh, going back to and buying and restoring old cars. I mean, you, you, it's an interesting thing to think about. The book set in 78. Yep. Uh, it came out in 83. So to the characters in the book, the car is 20 years old. To the readers, it's 25 years old.
4: Mm.
3: Now... You know we're recording this in 2018, so 25 years ago, you're talking about cars built in what 1993? Like yeah, that, that's right. That. Who cares about cars built in 1993? Um, You know, they'll they'll I'm sure probably somebody will pick up on this, but to my, as far as I know, there are no interesting cars made in no. 1993.
1: Well, is it because um, they're all? Is it the method of manufacturing that makes them uninteresting? It's less. Um, They're sort of mass-manufactured, less of a -a one-of-a-kind type. Plastic instead of chrome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, absolutely. I mean, Arnie uh, says at one point, you know, after Christine had been destroyed, uh, that, you know, most modern cars are made of plastic and this thing was like a tank it's made of steel and chrome. So it's tying into a kind of nostalgia that's coming out in America in the early 80s for this this period of, of this legendary period of car manufacture. Um, and I mean, you know, one of the things that's interesting about it is that King picks this particular car because it doesn't have uh, a legend attached to it. It's not a famous car.
4: Hmm.
3: Uh, the Plymouth Fury is not a famous car, nor are, nor are the, the other cars in the range from that period, the, the Savoy and the Belvedere. And yet simply by writing a book about, I and mean, presumably he, Picked it because of the name. Yeah, Plymouth Fury. You, you, You know, you you can't have. It wouldn't be the same if it was a a, a Sunliner. A, yeah, or a nineteen fifty eight Plymouth Unicorn. or something. Yeah, that's so an interesting concept. That should have been a thing. <laughs> you've got this name, uh, and so the car is picked virtually at random by virtue of the name, and yet simply by writing a book about it, it becomes one of the most sought after cars of that classic era, mm. um, and, it, you know, the car itself has become famous, uh, which again, you know, is a kind of um, an indicator of the, the caliber of success, and certainly the, the people I've talked to who are uh, interested in Plymouth Furies and uh, interested in the cars themselves, uh, you know, more than anything, most of them came to the car via reading this book, <laughs> and most of them came to the car reading, uh, you know, when they read this book when they were kids, and then it sort of stuck in their mind, and then years later when they had the time and the money and, and whatever, you know, they they found themselves a car and sort of proudly drive around in it. So uh, what's interesting is that the books written in the 80s were a nostalgia for the 50s because of this car. Yeah. But the people who are collecting the cars now have as much a nostalgia for either the 80s or whatever period it was when they read the book, as they do for the 50s itself. So it becomes a kind of, you know, generational thing, mm. this kind of love of this car.
1: car that resurfaces every 27 yeah, years was or so. thinking that. Uh, like yeah. a certain shape-shifting spider thing that we know of and yes. will surface in a couple of years in our chronology. Yes, so, it will. And don't,
3: and don't forget that Christine turns up in, yes. in she does indeed, and indeed in eleven twenty two. She 63. does, yes. I was gonna, I was you gonna, gonna ask first. ask you about that, about
2: her appearing, because okay. in eleven twenty two, when she first appears, that's before Christine, isn't it, Cronot, in within that timeline? Yes. So she's she's the son. Yeah, the Fury in eleven twenty two is before the events of Christine. Yes. Because we we came across that, didn't we? And we were a bit puzzled. If Roland Libé brought her new, how did she get to be rolling around?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Although I've kind of come to the conclusion that Christine is the kind of animal that can do whatever the hell she wants. (laughs) (laughs) And show up whenever and wherever she wants. And, you know, rev and outside, whoever's front door she wants. I'm not going to stop her. Although, having sat in her, I think, of the three of us, Simon is probably favourite to be the ne- <laughs> next victim. Um,
3: sure. um, so what do you two think about the character of Arnie? So let's, let's talk about Arnie for a little while. What do you think about him as a kind of Stephen King character?
2: I liked Arnie. I felt sorry for Arnie, as we're supposed to, but I think being that misfit like he was... At school, I was in the same. I was I was the female Arnie at school. I was the you know the one nobody liked. I was the one with the spots and the one who sat by myself at lunch. So I felt an affinity to Arnie. Yeah,
1: I I think that Kings um, Misfits are mm-hmm. generally speaking a lot a little bit more uh, well developed. Yeah, um, because it's a social or a position within the social hierarchy either of high school or of sleepy town america that king knows and, and understands hmm. and, and that comes across in the way that he writes uh, so I, I thought i found uh arnie a lot more empathetic than than dennis here. yeah and, i did and, and i know that a, a lot of Either by accident or by design, a lot of the um, plot comes from from Dennis's perspective. But I still found Arnie a lot more yeah. um, empathetic yeah. as a, a character. I think
2: so. he's he's definitely. I'm not saying his parents are evil. He's not got an evil mother like, say, Harry White. But there's definitely an element of control, isn't there? That we've come across over again.
1: And this is the thing, I mean, this is where maybe Christine ties into that sort of notion of, of the American dream and the freedom yeah. and mobility that the, the car affords in that sort of.
2: And he just seems that uh, the, the novel does model. seem to articulate that. Mm. And his freedom comes about because he's got Christine, and his ability to break the apron strings from his mother, so to speak, yeah. is directly because of his car. And he does say that
1: at some point in the novel, doesn't he? Yeah, but of course, then it. it locks him in or imprisons yeah. him in another way so as if it's a haunted house
3: yeah. <laughs> but i think i think it's also to do with it's also to do with bullying uh mm. in the sense that you know arnie's bullied uh, to, uh, at school yep he's bullied by darnell he's bullied by his mother yes and so yes he gets this thing uh he gets this car and and he finds his freedom but he ends up being bullied by uh, by LeBay at the same time. Yeah. It's like a it's like a cycle that he can't escape.
2: And he doesn't, um, does he? Because he ends up dead. There the yeah, is no escape. That's... And, you know, if, if the end of the novel comes and if Christine's back out there killing people, I think we're safe to assume that Arnie sat in that car with Roland LeBay and Buddy Reperton and everybody else too.
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, this is where this is where the message of the book gets slightly muddied because you think, okay, so Arne, because of the car, Arnie fights back against Buddy, uh, you know, with the, the the fight behind the auto shop. Yeah. Which is one of the scenes in the film that, that John Carpenter really gets right. It's a, it's a wonderful scene in the book. It's a great scene in the film. He, he fights back against his mother for right or wrong. You know, yep. uh, she's she's controlling and and King writes her very unsympathetically. Yes, he, he does. She's not not terrible. Um, She's not a terrible person. And in the end, he fights back against LeBay when um, Christine is in the the garage fighting with Dennis and Arnie's far away and and there's this report of him kind of struggling in the back of a car with Mm. somebody. But where does it get him? It doesn't get him anywhere. He fights back against all these bullies and ends up dead. So there, there there is a kind of problem to that because, you know, you want the message you know, what is the message here? The message is no matter how bad your teenage years are, they'll get better or <laughs> you should fight back against bullies and the results don't actually get any better. So it's sort of I, I suppose it's a horror story so so you, you end up with the downbeat ending, but it is kind of, the message of the the novel is sort of strange.
4: Mm. This is, I, is one of the things I was
3: talking I think it works if you look at the Book from Dennis's perspective and not if you look at the book from Arnie's perspective.
2: Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. This is one of the things I was meaning about the confusion that I was feeling occasionally with the book, not knowing King not seeming to know where he was going occasionally. Mm. I think that this is this is absolutely one of the times where that happens because you know the the point where Arnie says to Dennis, you know, help me,
4: mm.
2: you think this is going to be where the happy ending comes from. Dennis will help him and everything will be all right. But that's that's not what happens at all, is it?
1: I'm wondering then whether... Because obviously the, the book in the chronology previous to this is different seasons. Yeah. And you have Andy Dufresne and his battle with the sisters. hmm and, um, and obviously he is able to overcome his bullies in a way that Arnie is ultimately not able to.
4: hmm
1: uh, And I'm wondering what it is about... What it is that Andy Dufresne has access to that Arnie doesn't, and what he's able to harness. Is it purely economical and the fact that Andy has money or is it the social support system and his he has managed to sort of he's done his rite of passage and therefore is accepted into the prison community mm. uh, I, I don't think
2: know. I think in difference in, in Rita Hayworth Andy different has a patience mm. that Arnie doesn't have just simply through his age yeah you, yeah you know he wants to be free. He wants to escape his mother's shackles, and Christine affords him that. Whereas Andy
1: has to wait and wait and wait. Yeah, there is a, there is an urgency to to his timeline that's yeah. not in Andy Dufresne's, isn't yeah. it? In the sense that he everything seems to be focused on graduating in high school and going to college. Yeah, and um, and the freedom that that represents doesn't make sense to the freedom he's already got through mm. Christine. So yeah, okay, well,
3: thank you very much. That's, yeah, yeah, uh, very That answered my question. That's my intelligent thought of the week. But I suppose the flip side is that, you know, Arnie's coming of age is through buying this thing. And it's the old adage, you know, your possessions eventually possess you. And and, and this is writ large. And I suppose the way to think about it is that, you know, Arnie buys this thing. He thinks that this thing gives him value, gives Mm -hmm. him importance, gives him new status, new life, new opportunities. Uh, and what he neglects is the fact that from the very, very beginning, what he actually has is Dennis. Yeah. And you've got a fantastic line at the end of the book, just before the prologue, where um, then you know, it's just it's one of those things that King does very well, which we is just put a line there all by itself, with not in a paragraph, just by itself, and it just says, "Rest in peace, Arnie. I love you, man." Which is still a really powerful mm. um, six words, seven words, or whatever it is. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, and. In a sense, the heart of the book is the relationship between Dennis and Arnie, and you see Arnie get this, buy this thing and become increasingly less interested in his friends and increasingly more grown up, whereas, you know, Dennis sort of stands by Arnie the whole time. He never, he never turns away. He's always always there. It's just Arnie walks away from him. So maybe that clarifies the message of the idea of buying things doesn't make us better. And even though he's incredibly wealthy and has the biggest house in Bangor and the nicest house in Bangor and drives a Mercedes uh, and et cetera, et cetera. You know, the one thing about King is he's never he's never let his wealth define who he is, really. He still goes down to the local shops. He still eats at the local pizza place uh, and and all that. So, so maybe, you know, and, and particularly, again, this is coming out in 83. This is Reagan. This is um that kind of period where materialism and financial gain is is everything so yeah maybe that's the message it's it's nothing more nothing more complicated than the things you possess end up possessing you in this case absolutely literally
1: yeah Yeah, because this it also extends i mean i know we're looking specifically america here but it's a it's a thing that extends to the conservative government in this country at the time. I mean, it's, you know, the first iteration of the special relationship in that way, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Capitalism writ large. Yeah. But enough about Thatcher. I I don't want to go on to some weird sort of anti crusader.
2: Let's not not rant about that. That's a very different podcast. Indeed. indeed. We'll do that another day, Alan. I wanted to ask you, Simon, about Christine as a haunting presence and this is another, one of my other confusions, is, is she haunted by Lebe or is she haunted by something else which haunted LeBay? Because that's something I didn't quite pull out of the novel, which, which way round that was. We get that Le Bay is haunting Arnie through Christine, mm. but is Christine in and of herself some possession, possessive element?
3: I think in the book... Well, in the book, it's LeBay. Yeah. Um, in the book, it's LeBay. You know, when, when Christine uh, goes out cruising during that middle section, even though she's often seen as empty, the mm. implication is that LeBay's behind the wheel. And, uh, you know, Arnie's possessed by him, which is why his signature changes from his own to LeBay's signature. It, in the book, it's fairly straightforward. You know, this this poisonous, horrible man who... Again, he finds himself by this one material possession, mm.
4: uh,
3: allows his daughter to choke to death in it, allows his wife to kill herself in it, mm-hmm. uh, keeps driving around, not a care in the world except for Christine. You know, so, yeah, his kind of poisonous, horrible spirit possesses the car. But where it gets slightly confusing is, of course, it seems to possess the car before he's dead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you have that wonderful character, Richard McCandless, the guy from the Libertyville um, American Legion. Yeah. Who only rings up and who uh, does that fantastic line about Japs coming at him as Gu- Guadalcanal with their yeah. Maxwell House coffee swords. I won't quote the whole line because, you know, this may be a PG rated... I um, <laughs> assure you, you it's not. Okay, that's fine. Um, it was good Good to know. Um, but he, he talks about... This moment where um, LeBay was, they were out drinking and LeBay was being a, a horrible and was more obnoxious than usual. So these four guys yes. kind of lift up the back wheels uh, and Christine still pulls away, Yes. Uh, even though she shouldn't be able to. So there's an implication that somehow or other the car becomes possessed by LeBay yeah. and his meanness while it's still... In his possession. Yeah. And I, I think this is what I mean by this idea of uh, King and the 300-pound gorilla. He doesn't explain this. He doesn't feel the need to explain this. That's a good story, so he sticks it in.
2: Yeah, he also and says... It's
3: that, not wrapped up. He
2: also says at some point about the daughter dying, doesn't he? About how um, Lebe had put her back into the tower almost as a sacrifice to Christine. Yes. Which... Yeah, and... Uh, Sorry, go on. Go on, I was just saying, it doesn't clear up what's going on at all, does it? It it makes it even more ambiguous about who's possessing
1: what and where and when. It just makes an interesting set piece, never mind the consequences in terms of which way around it's supposed to be.
3: Yeah. I think that's that's absolutely true. You know, on a basic level, the car is some... Well, I, I mean, the only way to describe it is that, you know, somewhere along the line... The, the malignancy of LeBay becomes infused into the car and they become one.
4: Mm.
3: So, you, so you get that moment where Christine head, uh, Buddy smashes Christine's headlight and Dennis imagines LeBay dying at exactly the same time yes. with blood spread from his eye. Uh And then certainly once Arnie gets the car and LeBay's dead, it becomes a straightforward sort of possession narrative that, that's a lot clearer. But, but that early period is muddy. And I think, love him as I do, I just don't think he cares. I don't think Stephen King really cares, uh, particularly if it, it all makes sense. It, it is about the story, the narrative, and it, it's part of that kind of collage of malignancy and aura that kind of surrounds the car. Mm. Obviously, John Carpenter threw all that out the window and just had a kind of evil car, which is a very John Carpenter thing to do. But I think that also muddies the water, because if you read the book and then seen the film you know the film gives the impression that the car is inherently evil yes there in the book in the sense that at some point or other it becomes evil whilst in the bay's possession but the two things sort of muddy the waters and make it even less clear I Yeah. Think. I, I sound like i'm being really critical of the book and i you know remind say out loud and remind everybody again that i really love this book <laughs> but i think it's like like many things the things that are wrong with it become part of its Sort of attraction and yes, on,
2: absolutely. You can you can get your teeth into something a little bit better if it's not perfect, can't you? There's more to yeah. unpick if yeah. it's not
1: perfect. But also, there's there's something particularly in this context quite. Uh, I was going to say interesting. I'm not going <laughs> to say interesting. Yay! Um, Interesting. <laughs> no, not interesting. <laughs> we have we have a, Simon, we have a
2: thing. Alan says things are interesting. We've got a drinking game. So every time Alan says something's interesting, we get to have a drink. So he's trying to refuse to say it now.
1: Yeah. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> right, Simon said it. Therefore, Yay. you have drink. No, I think there's something very appropriate in, in this context. About something that we that we've loved in our in our youth, but we know is bad for us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think probably
2: giving King a lot more credit than he's due. I mean, there is it does mirror the confusion of being a teenager, doesn't it? Yeah. You know the whole we don't know what's going on, but then again, I'm fairly sure Ali didn't know what was going on even before he got Christine. Yeah. So you know, maybe giving him more due than he deserves, but. You know, that's
3: what we're allowed to do now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, one for me, one of the, the, the one of the key elements of it, if you like, is the f- fact, you know, the restoration job that Arnie does on the car, mm. and it's absolutely crystal clear that he does some of it, but not all of it. Yeah. And the rest of it just kind of happens as the as the you know the mileometer speeds backwards. and yeah. Becomes clear later on. But the first time he restores the car before it's trashed by Buddy and everybody else, Darnell talks about the fact that he never sees Arnie working on it, he just sees him sitting in the car and listening to the radio. Yeah,
2: and Arnie says that at some point as well, doesn't he? There's a, yeah. there's a passage where Arnie is sits in the car and loses time and things are done, but he doesn't remember doing them.
1: Hmm. Well, there's, um, all, there's almost, like, it's a...
3: tacit sort of reward for his time investment Mm. Mm. Um, absolutely but when the car's trashed you have that sequence where uh he remembers taking Anne to the junkyard pushing it and pushing it and pushing it and pushing it Yes. until such time as the tires reinflate and then the engine kind of repairs itself and then he gets it and drives it until it's back to pristine again yeah now he doesn't do that the first time around. He just sits in it and listens to the radio. Mm. Um, so again, there is this confusion here as to to how things actually happen, how things actually take place. And I think he has to, he has to finesse that a little bit because the fact that Arnie doesn't remember doing the work. Yeah. When he talks so much in the early stages about the amount of work he's doing, doesn't really it doesn't really fit together it doesn't no. really join. no and,
2: and the, money, the amount of money his mother says he's spent on the car over the summer it doesn't match with the work that
1: arnie has or hasn't done on it but i think that the capitalist impulse mm? and the tie uh, between arnie and, and christine is is established from his very purchase over at the beginning. Yeah. He wipes out his savings just by buying her in the first place, doesn't he? I think. No, that's his wage packet, isn't it? He gets his wages. Oh, that's right. Well, you get the impression that he doesn't have much slash away way beyond that point
2: well, anyway. $4,000. It was several thousand dollars for his college fund because him and oh, yeah. Regina have a big argument about it because she goes through his things and finds his bank book because that's part of the control she has over him that she even controls his money and what he is allowed to spend his money on. Mm. And I suspect, you know, in the early 80s, I mean, I was only, when this was published, I was only seven, so this is just a surmise. But, you know, there there would have been a lot of teenage boys who did feel like their parents were controlling, just as my teenage son thinks I'm quite controlling. (laughs) And, you know, that's going to have been a familiarity to many teenage boys when that book came out, that, yeah, that's, that's the way my life is.
3: And I wish I had that level of freedom. But you know what? I mean, for me, the the core cool and the most resonant sort of parental relationship in the book, the one I like the most is between uh, Dennis and his father. Yeah. Um, my experience of growing up wasn't very similar to Arnie's in any way, shape or form. But there's there's that moment where um, Dennis's father tells him that he used to work for Will Darnell. Mm. Uh, and that uh, he uh, he quit. And Dennis sort of asked him, why did you quit? And uh, he looked, his father looks him in the eye and says, uh, I'm not a fucking crook. Dennis. Yeah. Uh, and there's that incredible electric moment where Dennis's father talked to him as an adult for the very, very first time. Yeah. And, that, you know, 13 years old reading the book for the first time, that really resonated with me. That idea of being spoken to as an adult by your parents. And, yeah, if you look at it from the point of view of um, of parent-teenager relationship, uh, it's also quite interesting and quite rich. Because you've got this very functional, fascinating, wonderful relationship. Uh, you know, Dennis's whole family mm. is kind of gloriously functional, Um then you've got joiner and arnie which is a real problem then you've got poor michael arnie's father who's this kind of downtrodden beaten yeah. academic you know there you go we all i get don't recognize that, that figure michael. at all <laughs> we're all going to end up like michael at some point oh. but he's this kind of what cheery thought for the day <laughs> downtrodden and sad figure uh who just you know there's that wonderful moment where he talks about He made a play to be chair of the history department and got knocked back. I love the sense with the characters here that for all, Regina is a monster uh, towards Arnie. You get a sense of a narrative. She has a narrative of her own that's going on in the background. Yes. Uh, And it's drawn very sketchily, and there's nothing wrong with that because of the perspective of the book. You know, most of it's from Dennis's perspective, so he's only going to be able to surmise these things. But if you read between the lines and just sort of sit back and let the clues that you're given sort of play around in your mind, you get this idea of a bunch of very rich and very real characters, characters Mm. that you can believe in that that are not that are not cliche, but have a kind of life of their own. that to me again is you know that's always the thing that that King does so very very well yes yeah. I
2: I think he does do he's amazing at bringing characters to life isn't he I think his characters are
1: one of his biggest strengths yeah Um, I think that's what has given him the readership that And the kind of we can recognise
2: in ourselves. I mean, I I recognised Arnie in myself from school, even though I didn't have the same life as him, and I definitely didn't have a Plymouth Fury when I was his age. But I could recognise elements of my own school life in that. And I can recognise elements of, you know, being an adult academic in, in an academic situation and the the downtroddenness you start to
1: feel sometimes. I think the thing is, that, and this is perhaps an advantage of, or one of the deliberate ploys of Dennis narrating the majority of the book, is that you have various different aspects of the social hierarchy within the high school environment represented. Mm-hmm. And so that, that diversity means that a number of readers are going to recognise themselves somewhere mm-hmm. within that hierarchy, whether mm-hmm. it is the star of the high school football team or you know the the, the losers club yeah. or the mm. the, the league Cabots in this sort of in a repeat of the the carry white mm. um bitch patrol mm. that, that um haunts you know carry white's very existence but not to the same extent in this but uh
2: no, oh, but yeah, there is something. What what did you think, Simon, of the re- the the relationship Dennis has with Lee? Because that muddies him as a good character, doesn't he? That you know that I'm interested and I'm falling for my best friend's girl.
3: Mm. Uh, yeah, it does. It's it's cliche in many ways. You know, this these two people crisis situation kind of coming together behind Arnie's back. Yeah. Um, I think it, it's one of those things, it's narratively, it makes perfect sense narratively.
4: Okay.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, Don't buy it, really. Uh, I've never really kind of... They, it wasn't necessary. They didn't need to... No, I didn't think they, they needed to, need to do it. They didn't need to do fall in love. No. They just needed to, to, to come together and, and, uh, and solve the problem, as it were. But it does, I suppose it does kind of facilitate the climax in that last... You know, the last person, the last two people who Arnie has to hold on to are, are, you know, kind of turn turn their back on him and betray him, I suppose. But but it's never really, well, I wouldn't say it never really worked for me. I just, it's never struck me as anything significant to the narrative. Yeah, I didn't. Sort of there.
2: It worked because it was there and the book works but I didn't think it was needed at all. No. in the context of what was going on, they didn't need to have any of that. You know, they could have had the ending where he writes to that um, the back of the Christmas card and says, how do you cope? And she says, what with? They didn't need to be in any form of romantic relationship no. for that bit to still work.
1: No, but of course, I wonder if the, the element of betrayal is, from King's perspective, I wonder whether he's trying to make it so that the betrayal has been mediated by the fact that the object of Arnie's affections is not Lee at all, and it's actually christine and that's the whole point so really her relationship with dennis is not supposed to be viewed as a betrayal as such it's just uh a... no but i think i think personally speaking
2: even when i read it way way back years ago hmm. that made me like dennis a little bit less
4: oh, yeah
2: that- and it made me like lee a little bit less hmm. even though she was upfront with Arnie and yeah. said, We're finished. You know, if you don't get rid of this car, we're mm. done. And he doesn't. And she sticks to that. But at the same time, that's a triangle that you just, mm. you know, there's some people you just don't go out with. And your best friend's
1: girl is one of them. I mean, I said that you could view it as a potential negation. I didn't say that it was a successful one. And it was still, I still see the betrayal in there. Yeah. You know, I'm just trying to. You're just being devil's advocate. Oh, I'm playing okay. devil's advocate. Yeah, up again. yeah. Just
3: Give me some credit. Well, I suppose it also reminds us that these characters are horny teenagers. Well, yes! Yeah. You know, uh, and, uh, and at the end of the day, I suppose, you know, uh, a kind of benign lust is part of the narrative. I mean, there's a parallel, I guess. You know, uh, Arnie falls in love with Christine and that's all good for him. Uh, and... He shouldn't uh, because she's a thing. Yeah. And Dennis falls in love with Lee and he shouldn't because he's Arnie's best friend and she falls for him for Dennis because, and she shouldn't because she's Arnie's girl. So they're all, I suppose, what it does is you could argue it normalizes what Arnie does with Christine by saying, hey, look, you know, they're teenagers, we all do yeah. stupid things.
1: Is that um, a potential source of the empathy we said we all felt for Arnie at the very beginning of this possibly. podcast?
3: Possibly. Yeah. Mm.
1: Um, yeah. It's part of a, a, a an attempt by King to to recapture Arnie's humanity or the beginnings of that process because you get the sense that he is sort of fighting his uh, decline. Yeah, when in,
2: that, that mm. bit where he's talking to Dennis and he says, Help me, there is definitely a. Arnie in there
1: yeah. that is being taken over by Le Bay, mm. Isn't there? So that, that normalisation of uh, that Simon was talking about maybe is intended to be
3: the origin of that process. Maybe. And it also kind of rebuilds sympathy for Arnie at a time when, quite frankly, it's quite hard to be sympathetic. Yes. Yeah, way.
2: yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's not a nice person at all anymore, is he? No. And to be fair, if
1: I was Lee, I would have dumped him too. I don't think we need to add any further comments to that. <laughs> um, um, Simon, I wanted to ask you about Happy Days.
3: The, um, the TV show. Yes. Oh, right. Sorry, I was—I—I I, I thought you meant the Samuel Beckett play. Yeah, go on. I'm not, I'm
1: not sure I saw any Beckett references in in
2: Christine, but... Uh, there is definitely references to Happy Days in Christine. who's Arnie Cunningham, for a start-off. Yeah. The central character. And oh, yeah. the 50s.
3: But also... Oh, yeah, the, the the name is, you know, Arnold's, the uh, the bar or restaurant yeah. or cafe or whatever mm. they go to in Cunningham. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but
1: also the kind of um, normal domestic domestic bliss that you were indicating earlier that uh, Dennis lives in. That's kind of the environs that we sort of suggested that Richie Cunningham lives in with his mum and dad and, and Joanie and and so on. at the, the sort of um, American, American of 50s. suburbia of the fifties um, is replicated in what Dennis Scott, but also the the transformation that Arnie undergoes is very sort of um, Richie Cunningham to, to the funds um, with his perfect car and but um, but also I suppose the the emphasis on on the the music and the kind of lyrical quality is mm. as you were indicating earlier. The the book has and all the references at the beginning of the various sections of the book to the various songs that are played yeah. in the cassette player that Christine that inhabits Christine mm. um, are all I would perhaps suggest would be referential to the Happy Days esque
3: aesthetic that King yeah, might be driving absolutely. at. Absolutely, uh, uh, I I think you're absolutely right, and I mean. I can't remember, Happy Days was sort of uh, on air in kind of the mid-70s, 75, 76, 77, something like that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. something like that. So, I mean, that would have been quite a raw, fresh kind of influence uh, when the book was being written. Mm. Of course, you know, Happy Days is is all about pretending that the 50s were fab. Yes. um, Which, of course, they weren't uh, for quite a lot of people.
2: It's it's invoking that same nostalgia that we get in Christine for the 50s, isn't it?
3: Yes, it is. But with that darker edge, acknowledging the fact that somewhere underneath all of that, wasn't it great, wasn't it fine, sort of notion of the 50s, there was something darker and deeper sort of lurking, which, of course, was precisely the thing that ended up coming to the fore in the 60s and in the 70s Mm. in the, the U.S., so, um, I, I think there's always the sense that 50s nostalgia in America was about sort of looking back and pretending that the 60s and the 70s didn't actually happen. Yeah. And that's precisely, well, it's kind of what Happy Days does, but of course, um, in the last season of Happy Days, Richie goes off to fight in Vietnam, I think? Yeah, Something yes.
4: like that.
3: Or anyway, Ron Howard leaves the show and they've got to figure out a reason why Richie's not there and he actually goes off to, to Vietnam. Um... Christine's a lot more like uh, American Graffiti than it is about, than Happy Days. Yeah. Okay. I think, because American Graffiti has that, it's not a dark, so much a darkness to it, it has a very kind of bittersweet, it has a very bittersweet sort of uh, edge to it, that's kind of veering towards darkness. Yeah. Yeah. and I think Happy Days was obviously a direct response to, um, to American Graffiti and kind of grew out of that. Uh, but I think Christine sort of jumps back over Happy Days, uses some of the language of it, but is much more interested in what George Lucas was doing in American Graffiti and that kind of dark underbelly of, you know, let's not forget it, All these kids, or a lot of these kids who were kind of, you know, cruising in their hot rods in the late 50s and early 60s, uh, we're going to end up getting, you know, shot at uh, six, seven years later. Um. So, uh, so there is a there is a kind of darkness to it, and um, I think that's what King is tapping into, because for all Arnie, you can say he becomes. Like the Fon, uh, I don't think he does. I think I think there's a, an, an element of Fonziness to a kind of transitional period. Yeah. But very quickly, people start talking about him looking old and haggard mm. and rough, and, and then back brace. You know, and then you've got mm. the back brace, and he he talks, and this is one of those things that King does so well. People comment on the fact that he he talks like somebody who's much older than him than an 18 year old yeah and the dialogue as written reads like something that was is being said by somebody who's much older so king's got that very 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 tight ear for dialogue and the way people speak so yeah i think there's a bit of happy days in that clearly with the whole notion of arnie cunningham but i think um it's much 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 it's much bleaker than that. I think it's 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 American graffiti rather than, than happy days. I guess. And Bond's had a motorbike, not? At all, so. He did. That's
1: right. He really was a mechanic, is what, And I think it was the sort yeah. of the the ability to restore motor cars that I would, uh, that I saw in in Arnie as well as the sort of aesthetic restoration of his, of his own mm. um, um, the erasure of his geekiness in favor of a more sort of socially acceptable thing that allows him to uh, cultivate a romantic relationship with the would-be prom queen type mm. idea and yeah. the, the sort of the idea that only a Fonzie type figure has that kind of... Um, appeal to teenage girls of, of that social standing within that um, high school social hierarchy, um, but yeah, I take your point. That that's a sort of. Um,
3: it's it's quite interesting because there was a there was a, a, a new edition of Christine that was published in America a year or two ago, and I can't remember the name of the publisher. It's something like it um, begins with a P. Uh, And they've they've been going through and and republishing uh, these limited editions of various books, and the front cover art is is really interesting because it's the Fury, and sitting sort of leaning against the bonnet, you know, with a a cigarette is uh, this guy in a white t-shirt, leather biker's jacket, pants and engine, you know, jeans and engineer boots. Yeah, and it's very fondant. Yeah. But I look at the cover and I think, well, who's that supposed to be? Who's that supposed to be, leaning on the car? It's not Arnie, because he never, he doesn't wander around in a leather jacket. Although he does kind of have a 50s style, he, he doesn't dress in that kind of ponzy way. It's not Buddy. So who the hell is it that's, that's kind of leaning against this car? It doesn't quite it fits in terms of what you're talking about you know the the kind of icon of the 50s rebel and then you know the relationship to happy days but in terms of characters in the book it doesn't actually match any of the characters in the book so it's like it's there but it's not there if you yeah see I mean.
1: yeah i get the sense though in terms of the marketing of artifacts like that they're, they're not really bothered about its uh reference to specific figures or plot points in I think as long as Christine's in the on the cover somewhere yeah, yeah. it doesn't matter
2: who's leaning against her does it
3: No really No yeah, true but it, I mean it is interesting that they've they've gone for a kind of icon
2: Yeah No I, I completely agree. From I think the,
3: character from the book.
2: That's a that's a theme isn't it over the last several years I've noticed I saw a, a, a cover of Wuthering Heights that looked like twilight mm. because they were trying to feed off the same aesthetic because it was their favourite book or some
1: wonderful Oh, list. yeah. Yeah, the number of copies I've seen yeah. of Brotherhood with Edward and Bella's yeah. book written in it. So they're just trying to tap into something else to
2: bring an extra set of readers in. Yeah. So, yeah.
3: It is worth pointing out, though, you know, that I think one of the other things that's really interesting about... Uh, Christine, one of the other things that I noticed about it, you know, one of the reasons that drew me to it when it first came out, is that um, not so much the American edition, first edition of the book, but the British edition of the book, the cover art is absolutely spectacular. It's really glorious. It was published by New English Library, I think. Mm. Um, it had this really glorious uh, image on the front cover. It was incredibly striking. Um and uh, it sort of set a template for uh, the cover art throughout the 80s. You know, the, the way King's name was written, the font yeah. uh, sees you through Pet cemetery and sees you through it and then sees you all the way through to, to misery, I think. Uh, and, you know, there was this this fantastic, gorgeous limited edition that was of the book that was produced by Donald Grant, which is very, very sought after now, uh, a kind of lettered edition the book looks as good as the car does uh certainly that's what struck me when i first saw the cover of the book and, and i remember um stephen king came to forbidden planet in london to do a signing and uh, i still got the little um the little leaflet that that i came across in forbidden planet and i didn't go because um, it was a school day uh, <sighs> I always regret that because I should have done because I never got another chance to do it. But that would have been quite fascinating. But it was a book that looked beautiful. Mm.
1: Um, I think our sides are telling enough. We don't need to say, <laughs> say anymore.
3: But that's also very eighties, isn't it? Yes. The yeah. gloss, which which again ties into the theme of the book and the idea of restoring something so that it's pristine, beautiful cherry. Yeah. Um, it's you know it's rotten inside, but. It looks lovely and that, that in and of itself is is very 80s and yes. very anti-capitalist yes. as well
1: yes i'm wondering if because this is something that maybe might you know in terms of king writing in in cycles and we've talked about things recurring every sort of 25 mm-hmm. 27 years this is maybe something a, a lot of publishing houses are now talking about how they're having to make their the veneers of their of their covers a lot more attractive to fend off uh, the e-readers and, and uh, kindle uh, generation and and to make it so that people still buy print print books and so i'm wondering if in terms of the cyclical nature of a lot of things that king is interested in the future of the book being one of those i would imagine uh, whether it's something that so plays into that I think, I think that's the one that's going to come up later isn't it with King
2: but he has been at the forefront of experimental fiction Yeah, hasn't he Yeah. so that's that's one that will pop I think will crop back up later
4: mm-hmm.
2: so Sam did you want to talk about the car um,
3: yeah I will do a little bit it's a frustrating thing for people who are fans of the car uh, Christine the car the, the, that it doesn't actually exist in the real world yeah um the 1958 Plymouth Fury was a two-door. Yes, and Christine's um, a four, isn't she? Christine's a four-door. Um, she's red and white, and uh, the Fury was uh, only available in beige. But you know, King says that it was custom, yeah. custom-made, custom-painted. In actual, I mean, you know, his mantra has always been right first, research later. So uh, there are problems. At one point, just before Christine goes off to kill Darnell, it's sitting in the garage, and uh, it, it says, you know, um, Christine's gear lever, uh, gear handle slowly drop down to drive. Mm-hmm. Now that, that's the kind of the wonderful American kind of gear handle that's, that's behind the steering wheel. Yeah. Um, but the Fury had a push-button transmission. Um, it didn't have a gear handle at all. It had a push-button transmission, one that actually didn't, didn't work all that well. Um, but you know by the side of the steering wheel there were a bunch of little push buttons for park reverse drive okay
2: so when you you, when you met her mm -hmm. were these details had these details been brought into the fury into these the one you met well no that's the interesting thing
3: um there are certain things you can do because there were three models there was the, the the savoy which was the um, the kind of entry level model, yeah. Uh, the Belvedere, which was the kind of family saloon, and the Sport Fury, which was the kind of hot rod version. Yeah. Christine is actually based more on the Belvedere than the Fury itself. The Belvedere, I think, I get this right. If any car people listening, sorry, I get this wrong. But the Belvedere was a four door. So, what you've got with car fans uh, Car fandom, you know, is people who want to kind of recreate Christine. Yeah. And the only way you can do that really is the exterior to do uh, and and the interior kind of fixtures and fittings. So you you have the red seats, the red carpet, uh, you have the the red and white trim. I've never seen one that's mucked around with the transmission uh, and kind of replaced the push buttons with with a gear transmission. That would be.
2: That would be a big deal, wouldn't
3: it? To- that would be a big deal to do, and more importantly, uh, when it comes to the car fandom, the car fandom is inextricably intertwined with the movie, mm. more so than the book. It's the look of the car in the film yeah. that really people are kind of aiming for, rather than the the uh, the way the car is in the book. So, yeah, you never get uh, you never get anyone mucking around with the the transmission and putting gear shifts in or anything like that. You want the dashboard to look as it is. So most Christines that are out there are sort of well, most you know, for the most part they're they're kind of hybrids. They're cobbled together from uh somebody will buy a, a Savoy or a Belvedere and kind of there are people out there, experts, who will then source the parts and kind of respray it and turn it into a kind of Christine clone for you. Okay. Uh, which is quite an expensive process. I imagine uh, it is. But, you know, it is interesting that what you're talking about is people collecting a car that doesn't actually exist. Mm. So you're you're restoring something not to what it actually was but into a false a kind of false copy a simulacra of 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 a fictional version of the same car, and that's quite fascinating. And
2: that brings yeah. us back to nostalgia again, doesn't it? Yeah. Nostalgia's a recollection of something that didn't necessarily exist. It's just the way you think
1: of it. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Your sort of... Um, rose-tinted alter- memory. Altered perception. Yeah. or Yeah, rose-tinted perception of, of past events. Not necessarily an accurate mm. collection. I'm just wondering though whether part of the appeal of restoring a collector's item like the Christi- uh, a Christine with its sort of slight variations between models is in sort of the process involved in the sense that it then replicates the kind of the, the blood, sweat and tears that was invested in it in, in narrative terms, the way that King envisioned it. Um, the restoration is replicated as, as well as the end
3: product. Maybe, that makes sense. maybe. Yeah, no, that does make sense. We are all Arnie Cunningham. <laughs> Well, yes, because, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, once the blood, sweat and tears are over, uh, what you've got is this kind of wonderfully shiny status symbol that has a significant meaning for you, but which you also kind of, you know, also looks good enough to have people sort of, you know, to turn heads as they're going by. Mm.
1: But also that nobody else will ever understand as much as you do.
3: (laughs) In a sense, and, and believe me, I have a huge amount of respect for people who collect, uh, people who kind of aspire to or have uh, Christine, either Christine's or Christine clones. I have a huge amount of respect for them. What they're doing in getting it sort of negates the message of the book in the first place, which is that the things that you possess end up possessing you. Yeah. So in a sense, one of the things that's quite interesting is that in – the in a particular strand of fandom that the book has launched and which which is owned purely by the the book and the film effectively undermines what the author was trying to say in writing the book in the first place yeah you know? yeah but that's that's kind of good that's sort of in a way what's fandom supposed to do I think it's supposed to take the ideas of the authors and then then turn it into something uh, that belongs to the people who who read it. It's the sort of Roland Barthes thing, you know, yeah. the death of the author. King writes X, but what we take away from it is Y, yeah. and you know, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But certainly, to actually sort of stand by one of these cars is, and particularly one that was in the film, is genuinely breathtaking. Uh, not because necessarily it's. You know, I'm a fan and I like these things, et cetera, et cetera. If you you know, if you just go to a classic car show, even you know, it doesn't have to be a big one, uh, you know, it can just be sort of one that's taking place in a local area where a bunch of enthusiasts are to getting together. You look at these particularly American cars from the fifties, all polished up with their chrome and their fins and they're
4: huge
3: and it is mightily impressive. Mm-hmm. You know, the interiors are luxurious. It's, it's a totally different world from even the most highest and highest spec cars you can buy today. Yeah. There's something truly luxurious about it. And that, right or wrong, that is something that is lost, something that is gone, something that will never, ever return. Yeah. Um, because, you know, it won't be very long before the idea, you know, it won't be very long before having a car becomes very very difficult because of uh, the environment and the impact that we're having yeah. so in a sense it's it's a bygone you know in a, it's like looking at a piece of art that drives mm. that's basically what any one of these cars it could be the 58 Fury it could be a, a, a Chevy Bel Air from the mid 50s doesn't really matter what it is uh, a Caddy uh, you know you're standing next to a piece of art, something that, that has been designed not just to get you from A to B, but to be beautiful whilst doing it. Yes. And I think that's the attraction, but this, the interesting thing about this particular one is that there are fans of, uh, there are, you know, people out there who are fans of Plymouth, the make, there are fans who are out there, people out there are fans of the, the 58 Plymouth range, don't get me wrong, but the majority of the fandom is directly linked to this book and to Carpenter's film, and that to me is quite fascinating.
1: Mm, I agree, indeed. Now I'll just find it again. No, I will do it this time. Fuck Go it! On, I, I find it interesting that um, that I think part of when you when you look at cars like this, in terms of apart from taking away the, the status that it affords you and the the of social capital that it affords you, a lot. Of it also, again, comes back to the, the the pleasure that is derived from the act of driving the yeah. car, the smoothness of the ride, etc., And so I'm, I'm, I sort of lament on Arnie's behalf the fact that having gone through the, the blood, sweat and tears and process of restoration, both of him as driver and of, of the car, that he is not afforded the luxury of recollecting driving the car.
3: Mm-hmm. That's true. Actually, I never really thought of it that way, but that is actually very, very true. Uh, you know, most of the joy gets in it is just from sitting in it. Yeah. Yeah. So a, a symbol
1: that is associated typically with, with mobility is the joy is
3: derived from sta- being there. stationary. Wow. Well, and therefore, that back to the haunted in, house analogy. That ties in again to the idea of of having a possession. Uh, yeah. You know, there's a difference between uh, there's a difference between having a hobby that you do something where you do something like restore a car or um, uh, knitting or uh, making model kits or whatever it may be, mm. uh, and having uh, collecting a thing, yeah. collecting things. You know, you like collecting Lego or something like that. Well, no, Lego is not a good example because you build it. Uh, collecting, you know, there's little kind of TV figures. I won't mention the name in case we're not allowed to advertise. Oh, you know fine. the ones I mean. I know the ones you mean. just um, so you know, the the Put them on a shelf and then they're there. And yeah. there's nothing else you can do with them except go buy another one. Yeah.
4: yeah.
3: Um, the interesting thing with regards to being a fan of a particular car is that you're... you're Collecting one thing, and once you've got it, you've got it.
2: But there's a once constant state of upkeep for that, though, isn't there? Where there isn't yeah. with those particular models, um, for example, you know, to keep the car nice, you do need to keep on top of it. You need to keep it. It needs kept up. You need to make sure the tyres are fine and the oils changed,
3: and or else it rots. But there's there's a there's a synergy there with the idea of of uh, love and romance, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, the aspirational thing is to find the person you're meant to be with your life partner etc etc and then once you found them it becomes it becomes something different it's about maintaining that relationship yeah. and and keeping it going and the aspirational aspect of it is set aside because because you don't have to aspire to a boyfriend or girlfriend anymore or a wife or husband because you've got one because you go got yeah. alan yes but then, you know, that, uh, that, of course, parallels, that, of course, means that, it par- you know, the story of Arnie and Christine parallels the story of a love affair, the yeah. idea that you, you aspire to something, you work at something, and then it's there, and then, then you know, it becomes a different kind of work. Yeah. To maintain it, to, to keep it going, to keep it interesting, to, to you know, um, I don't really know where I'm going with this, but you, you see the kind of, see the kind of parallels I mean, so yeah. with, with a collector who, who builds a Christine, once they've got that Christine, they can polish it, they can drive it around, they can show it off, but it will never have the same kind of cachet as building it and mm. putting it together in the first place. Yes. I think. I, no, I agree. I agree. Hmm. Can we talk about the movie for a minute? can. Yeah, of course we of can. can. Is that allowed? Yes, yeah, sure, sure. You go. Well, what do you two think of the film?
1: I like the film. I think, uh, yeah, I like the film. the film. I think it's one of, because um, I remember one of the first conversations I I had with you at uh, the BFI. Uh, we talked about the sort of um, vast discrepancy in quality between some of uh, the various adaptations of, of King's canon. This is certainly one of the, the better. Oh. Um, adaptations. I've got a lot of
3: time for it. got a lot of time for John Carpenter. Yeah, I do too. I think everybody does. I think uh, John Carpenter's made some really great films and he's made some really terrible movies, but he's just one of those directors that everyone's got a lot of love for. And I think one of the reasons for that is that the horror films he was making in the 70s and 80s, or the films he was making in the 70s and the 80s, possibly with the exception of The Thing, um, were were the kind of films that you could watch when you were 13, 14.
4: Yeah.
3: You know, you could watch Halloween when you were 13 years old, and it was good and it was scary, mm-hmm. but it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't too scary yeah. to watch when you were younger. Uh, and the same with The Fog. And then obviously The Thing is 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 a genuine, no-nonsense masterpiece yes. from start to finish. And, I, you know, Christine is not, it's not a great adaptation and it's not necessarily a great carpenter film I don't think but it has elements in there that are really really impressive I uh-huh. mean oh, I've forgotten his name guy who plays Arnie uh, we'll yeah. scrabble around going M mm mm is our friend well Keith Gordon yes Keith Gordon he's absolutely fantastic in the film he's great I mean to me and, and I said this when I introduced the film at the BFI uh, and it got a ripple from the audience. But to me, uh, Keith Gordon's performance in Christine is up there with Kathy Bates in Misery as, uh, or Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman in Shawshank mm-hmm. as among the great incarnations of Stephen King characters on screen.
4: Mm.
3: I think he's absolutely perfect. And all of the cast are perfect. Uh, Robert Prosky as Darnell is fabulous. Harry, the, the late, great Harry Dean Stanton has very little to do, but he just brings that kind of effortless class that he always has yeah. just by sort of turning up and standing around and smoking to it. It looks The film looks good. Narratively, it's a mess. You know, the finale isn't great uh, compared to the book by any strange stretch of the imagination. Uh, and it has these huge Flaws and logic. So, you know, Buddy tries to run away by re- literally running down the yellow line in the middle of the road, which is not what you want to do if you're being no. followed by a car. And uh, Darnell's death is is a waste completely when you consider how brilliant that sequence where Christine sort of breaks into his house mm. uh, is in the book. But
2: I think, but taking it, it as does. a whole,
3: it does work. It does, it does. work. It doesn't work.
2: Is that
1: I think the question that I have for you is that is Christine's brilliance the sort of result of it being a, a, um, the perfect synergy between two masters of horror in two different media's? Ah, uh, you
3: know what? Um, no, I don't think so. And I'm
1: perfectly uh, fine with that answer. That's fine. Obviously. No, because I think
3: you know if you look at if you look at the 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 King adaptations uh, from that early period. Um, they're all builders, Stephen King's...
4: Yeah.
3: ...X, Stephen King's Cujo's... Well, Cujo not so much, but you had Stephen King's Firestarter, Stephen King's mm. The Dead Zone. This is John Carpenter's Christie. Yeah, this is like Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, true. And um, I, think, I think what you've got there is the same sort of uh, clash, culture clash, that you had between Kubrick and King with The Shining, in the yeah. sense that Carpenter and King they don't go together. They they see horror differently.
4: Mm.
3: You know, in Carpenter's work, horror is just it's just there. It's just a force that exists. Yeah. And you don't explain it, uh, and you don't justify it. it's just there. Yeah. So to him, the idea of the car being evil makes perfect sense. In the same way that Michael Myers is yeah just evil and seemingly immortal, it, it doesn't make any sense, but it's there, yeah. and that's the way he sees it. I think one of the, the things that, that Christine runs into problems with is that you know Kubrick now has this iconic auteur status, so The Shining in critical discourse is elevated to the point of a Kubrickian film, mm. whereas Carpenter has this kind of cult status, uh, and you know some of the stuff I've read has been very much around this idea of carp- uh, Carpenter lowering himself to do a king project. Mm. Whereas, you know, we think of Kubrick, he doesn't lower himself to do a king project. He takes a king project and elevates it to his level. Yeah. Whereas somehow Christine is, is, is a, a, you know, Carpenter lowering himself, which, which I suppose makes sense when you consider that he did it on the back of the thing, which was a flop, but was nevertheless... His his masterpiece. Mm. Um, so so less in the same way that The Shining is. It's an unequal uh, meeting of minds. Yeah. Um, and I think the film is more Carpenter than it is King yeah. by some distance. But then it gets solid with this idea of being, uh, you know, a film that was made uh, on demand. It it had to. It was going to get a, a, a PG thirteen certificate. So they they went back and just kind of. Kept adding swear words to the script in order to try and actually get an R rating in the same. Mm. which has the the knock-on effect of this being one of the few books that actually captures King's language. Yes, in terms of his profanity on screen, because uh, that usually gets you know softened because because obviously King writes a lot of swear words in his book, mm. um, but here it is front and centre, and they even add swear words to the the dialogue to. To, to make it worse but I do again you know this this was a film I saw when I was very young way too young to be able to see it um That's of and, fun. and I loved it I loved it I loved it because because I just I just thought even then I could recognize I was not only did it have a pretty car in it but I could recognize that there were performances in here that were really really actors working at the top of their game yeah and I think Keith Gordon will say the same thing. You know, he's he's done the. You know, he's one of these people who kind of remains often more at a distance uh, from the kind of fandom than some of the other cast members because he's more famous, mm. to be honest, uh, and doesn't quite need it. But he's always, you know, he still maintains this kind of relationship with the fandom. Uh, Bill Gibson, I remember his name now, is the guy who owns. The christine movie car yeah uh and um every now and again you know keith gordon will record a, a, a you know a little kind of uh vignette when the car that he uh, that can be played when the car does a, a personal appearance <laughs> and it's it's lovely i mean if nothing else it's really nice that fans of the film have got this tangible thing that they can actually go and see yeah you know i mean how many other horror films can you think of where the baddie can you can go and visit it you know you can go and see it you, you know it's not like an actor dressed as mike myers or a guy in a freddie costume yeah. or something like that this is the actual thing yeah there it is you can go and have a look at it that's kind of cool it is i agree completely how about wrapping up i think
2: we've been talking for a while
1: yeah to be fair i think we've covered a, a vast array of uh, different topics and i'm quite i've been Really enjoying the
2: discussion. Good, good. Um, uh, Before we go, Simon, I'd just like to give you a little plug for your latest book, which I'm in the middle of reading, Screening Stephen King. Thank you. Yes, I'm. I'm enjoying it, and I think all our readers should go out and buy it right now. It's it's
3: rare. It's an academic book that's available in paperback. Yeah, it's actually affordable. Yes,
1: which does make a change for an academic title. And it has the greatest front cover of all academic (laughs) books ever published. (laughs) <laughs> i'm glad you like
2: it yes uh, no I, I am genuinely enjoying reading it just you know I, not as an academic book even i'm just enjoying reading it well
3: I, I i mean and i'm not plugging i'm not trying to plug the book at all but um i enjoyed writing it because i wrote it from the perspective of a fan a constant reader who's finally felt, felt he learned enough to be able to articulate some of the some of the thoughts you've been having about this stuff for so many years. And uh, I, I I read a review, there was a lovely review in the Times Literary Supplement, which I was astounded that they reviewed it. But the, uh, the reviewer said, he, you know, he enjoyed the book, he just wished that I'd offered more kind of uh, critical opinion about the films themselves, you know, whether they're good and whether they're bad. And the point, I think, certainly from somebody who, point of view of somebody who reads the books and watches the films. There are some I think are good, some I think are bad, some I like, some I don't, some I don't like that other people do. Mm. And I think everybody can make up their own minds about whether a film is, is good or bad, whether it's... And with something like this, what makes it good or bad? Is it a good film? Is it a bad film? Is it a good adaptation? Christine's a bad adaptation, but it's a good film. Yes. Um, so I didn't really want to go down this route. I just wanted to, to talk about what the films are in relation to horror and uh, let the audience, uh, the reader, make up their own mind about whether what I was talking about was a good or bad film. But I can tell you. Now, you know, I don't like The Green Mile. I think it's a perfectly worthy film, and I'm glad I've seen it, and I never want to sit through it again. Yeah,
2: do you know what? Um, I have the same thoughts about The Green Mile. I've seen it once. It was all right. It wasn't the Oscar-winning performance I was led to believe it was going to be, in my opinion, but that doesn't mean other people don't love it. No,
1: precisely. In its defence, it does have Harry Dean Stanton in it. (laughs) (laughs) But given uh, how you two have preceded this dialogue, I'm going to leave it at that and run away.
2: So, yes, I would absolutely recommend any readers go out and buy a copy of Screaming Stephen King by Simon Brown.
1: Yes, and and I'm sure that there'll be uh, plenty more um, John Carpenter material for our listeners to uh, get their teeth into. Do Do you know what I
2: watched the other week? Just randomly, because it was on the horror tunnel. I watched They Live. (laughs) Because I love that film. Have you watched They Live? The one with Rowdy Roddy Piper with his magic sunglasses. You had me at magic sunglasses. Oh, it's brilliant. Have you watched that one, Simon? Oh,
3: yeah. And
1: if you don't like Margaret Thatcher, then you should definitely watch it. Yeah. You should absolutely. Magic sunglasses. Hatred of Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. I think I've uh, sorted my viewing for the weekend.
2: <laughs> right, so I would like to just take this opportunity to thank you to Simon Brown for yes, joining us Thank today. you very much, Thank Simon. you very much, Simon. We really appreciate it. Thank and, you for having me. And to the newly minted Dr Alan Gregory Fox for taking time out of his freshly married status to do this podcast with us.
1: And I will thank my wife for allowing me to do so. <laughs> <laughs>
2: So thank you very much. Bye. Bye. Thank you both. Take care. Bye-bye.